kids are headed out to Children's Church. If you have your Bible with, with you, would you just take it and turn to the Gospel of Mark? Mark's Gospel, Chapter 7. It's great to see you this morning. It's great to be together and worship. Just welcome you. Great to sing our praises to the Lord and, and good, to, good to share in fellowship together. And uh, you know me, I'm always looking for an opportunity to get my basketball shoes out. So uh, Mark chapter 7, we're going to read verses 24 to 37. So can you stand with me as I read this? Mark 7, 24 to 37. We're in this series we're calling Triumphant, and we're just thinking about how Jesus is Lord. So even as we listen to this text together and engage with it for a few moments this morning, just let's be thinking about the different ways that even in this text, Jesus demonstrates himself to be Lord. And we'll talk about some of that as well. Uh, I'll read at the end of my reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you can respond by saying, thanks be to God. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in. <laughs> that just sounds like someone who had just had a verbal debate with a bunch of Pharisees and religious leaders. He wanted some time off. He needed rest. But he couldn't keep it a secret. Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. Since she was a Gentile born in Syrian Phoenicia, Jesus told her, First, I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, That's true, Lord. But even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. Jesus left Tyre and went up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Ten Towns. And a deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to him, and the people begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. Jesus led him away from the crowd so they could be alone. He put his fingers into the man's ears, then spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, which means be opened. And instantly, the man could hear perfectly, and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. And Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. And they were completely amazed and said again and again, Everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear and gives speech to those who cannot speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Well, not very often that we get to talk about spit in church. So aren't you excited about what is in store uh, this morning? Um, uh, 
Every parent knows, if you're a parent, especially of two or more children, if you're not, then you need to listen in because you may be someday, and even if you don't or won't, you uh, might be around multiple kids someday. And this is an important lesson. Every parent has learned this lesson that while we may love our children all equally, as I do my own two dear children sitting here on the front row, we do not treat them equally or the same in every circumstance. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, we love them equally, but we know that they are uniquely made. We know that they have different personalities and makeup and that they respond to different situations in different ways. And so as we begin to learn this and observe this, we, we get a little bit of insight into them and we learn to treat them or respond to them in different ways as well. They have distinct personalities. They are uniquely crafted. They have particular characteristics. And whether or not they, even though they may have come from the same you know, genetics. They came from the same parents. They've ra- been raised in the same environment. Still, you know it because you have been it. You, these are different people. They're, they're, they're different folks, and, and, and we need to relate to them. Parents have learned in, in different ways. Uh, we tailor our, our responses to them. We know that one size does not fit all, and uh, and. And, and again, we, we respond to them in, according to their specific makeup. I have a picture here that's one of my favorite pictures of all time of my two kids. Because <laughs> this picture just communicates so much about my two children. And, and I'm sure they're okay with me showing this to you all. I've showed it to just about everyone that I meet uh, when they ask about my children. Because I just think we were able to snap this photo it's uh, in a moment that just captured so much of, of their distinctiveness. Um, that's, this is a few years ago, and my kids are barely recognizable, actually, in this picture, if you've uh, seen them now. But um, there's my, my young son, Thomas, on the right. And uh, we're on a lake, and we're on this inflatable sofa, basically, is what it is, let's be honest. And they're on this, and they're, being, they're hooked up to a boat, and I have been towing them behind that boat in likely quite reckless fashion. And they have been spinning and turning and twisting and probably flipping, although Katie's hair still looks dry, as they're both, hair, both of their hair still looks dry, so they haven't gone in the water yet. Uh, but Thomas is giving to me the thumbs up, the universal boating sign for what? Hit it. Go faster. Let's get this thing going. Get it up to as fast as it can go, as fast as you can. Turn as many sharp corners as you can go, and let's, let's flip this thing as, as fast as we can. I can't wait. Uh, Katie, on the other hand, is giving us not only uh, a thumbs down, which means slow down. We haven't even started yet, and she's giving us the thumbs down. But look at her face. If you can see it, the look on her face is saying, I can see out of the corner of my eye Thomas's thumb is up, and I really don't want that. I want this. Give me more of this, not this. He's giving this. I want this. And, and in her thumbs down telling us to go slower, that is saying so much about uh, her personality as, as well. And Kyle and I have learned and let's just be honest, are learning still what these two signs mean when it comes to relating to our kids and trying to parent them well. 
We think that Thomas is pretty assertive, you know, pretty uh, aggressive, a little more adventurous, uh, will kind of jump into things a little bit more uh, on his own, and, and that's awesome. And we have, we have tried to learn how to encourage him to do that and sort of just let him go and try to offer certain warnings perhaps at times where that may be necessary, knowing that that may or may not be listened to. Katie, on the other hand, we've learned that at times we need to just maybe give her a little bit more of a nudge and, and to encourage her to get out and to try new things. But we've also come to appreciate her, her ability to structure life and her ability to keep things under control and the discipline that she has to not kind of get out and, and get crazy and to celebrate that and to, and to really raise that up as well. It's just interesting as parents working with, you know, living with two different kinds of kids, one thumbs up and one thumbs down, to know how we can best relate to them. And this is a process that, that we know, Kyla and I, my wife, will carry on until we're gone. <laughs> and we carry on for the rest of our lives trying to figure out these kids and how we can best help them to become all that God has called them to be. That's our only goal. It's not to make them into, like, mirror images of ourselves, little clones, or, or just kind of repeat after one another, two that we can just you know, keep our thumb on and control, but to let them become who they are as unique individuals. And it's this sort of differentiated parenting that, that in which we really honor our kids and, and honor them as not only different from ourselves, but different from each other, that, that just seems right. Don't you want to be treated as an individual? I mean, whether your parents have done that for you or not, whether that's something that, you know, uh, maybe your boss isn't able, just kind of treats all his or her employees the same way, or a teacher just kind of looks out at the classroom and says, you know, this is just a mob of kids. You're all the same. Just take a number. I mean, I don't know, you know, the circumstances we might find ourselves in, but, but most of the time, most of us are like, I am me. I am different. I am unique. Please treat me that way. And, and this is, just, I think, at the, at the cry of every human or at the heart of every human being that we would be, that we would be treated this way. I think this, uh, this invitation or this, this, this idea, this picture of parents and others treating people in unique and individual ways is a, is a beautiful reflection of how God works with every person who has been created in his own image, as I talked about with the kids. God is the great differentiator. He is able to, he, not only has he created us uniquely, distinctly, not a single one of us the same. I mean, we have similar patterns and personalities. Some of us, maybe, we've got doppelgangers. Somebody came up to Kylie the other day. We were at a cross-country meet for Katie, and the lady started staring at her from about 20 feet away and walking at her and just smiling. And Kylie's like, and the lady goes, hi, I know you from work. And Kylie's like, no, you really don't. And she goes, yeah, we work together at City College. Kylie's like, I don't work at City College. This is the weirdest thing. Has that ever happened to you? I'm like, Kyle, you got a doppelganger at City College. But um, we, we do have some similar traits. But at our core, at our essence, we are different people. You are a different person. And, and, and more than anyone, the God who created you that way is able to celebrate you that way. 
The God who made you like this is able to to nurture you like this and to help you to become the unique and creative and individual person that he made you to be. Everyone with unique gifts, callings, life journeys, all of which may give rise to unique circumstances. I mean, you find yourself in circumstances that I hope I never find myself in. And I have found myself in circumstances that I wouldn't wish on any of you. I've found myself in some that you would love to be in. And I see some of you on Instagram or Facebook that I would love to be in. But I'm not. You're in that circumstance. And that's a wonderful place for you to be because that's who you are. That's your story. And we've seen it time and time again. We've experienced it in our own lives that God, in his wisdom, I don't know how he does this. It's, it's because he's God. But in his wisdom, God is able to work with us as individual people patiently, uniquely, teaching and shaping and dealing with us in personal and intimate and loving and graceful ways, helping us to become all that he created us to be. Just like his parents, we want our children to grow up to be who they are, not who we want them to be. God created us and wants us to grow up to be who he created us to be. He wants us to be that, yes, but he calls us and creates us to be that very thing. And I am so glad. I just, just, just be glad for a moment that God sees you as the unique individual that he created. You're different. You're distinct. No one like you. You have strengths and talents and abilities and perseverance and stuff within you that he put in there that nobody else has. And he sees you that way and he celebrates that, you that way and he's wanting to help you to become who you are individually in his sight. We can celebrate that. And these stories just kind of point to this reality. These stories that we've, we've read about Jesus this morning just point to this reality that that, that in his ministry, Jesus did not treat the people that he encountered in a one-size-fits-all fashion. Jesus didn't have a, like a rote set pattern of healing that he just sort of entered into every single time. He didn't say, all right, oh, another one? All right, just have him take a number. I'll get, I'll get to him in just a second. Let me deal with this lady first. Jesus had a very unique, personal intimate way of dealing with everyone who came his way in the New Testament, whether someone who was coming for, for healing, one of his disciples, someone else that he was speaking to, it was very, always personal and very intimate in the way that he really worked with people, in particular with, with lost and broken people. Jesus did not offer five easy steps to wholeness and health. He didn't have like a manual or like a little booklet or a set elevator speech to give to anyone who came into range of his voice. Like, this is how you do it. Just follow these steps and you will, you will find all that you need. No specific words, no mantra or slogan that needed to be spoken every single time to every person. Instead, we see that Jesus, again, in these stories as well, that Jesus was able to see the situation, see through the situation to the person, see through the person to the person's heart and to their deepest need, and to reach right to that place, to touch the person right at that place, uniquely and creatively responding to each person's personal suffering in the, in the way that the person could know. And these stories just bear it out. In, in, in a way that the person could know, 
that beyond a shadow of a doubt, they had been encountered by someone incredibly special and unique himself. That they had been encountered by, by someone, and we see it throughout the Gospel of Mark, people discovering more and more about who Jesus is. That they had been encountered by someone who was sent from God. That they had been encountered by someone who cared deeply about them, who knew them better than they could have imagined, better than maybe they even knew themselves, who loved them and who treated them with great care and compassion. Both instances of healing are examples of the Lord's sensitivity, again, to the individual context of the people. It's easy to begin to go through the motions in the work that you do, isn't it? I, maybe not for you. Maybe, maybe you're able in the work that you do just to find, you know, some fresh spark for every time you do something you know, in your job that you've done over and over for the last seven and a half hours, you're able just to kind of figure it out and do it again, new and fresh every day. But for a lot of us, I was just talking to somebody recently as part of our church, and, and they were just like telling me, hey, I've, I've gotten to the place in my job where I can do most of it with my, like my eyes closed. I can do most of it in my sleep. I can go into a meeting and I know just like within a few minutes what the problem is in this meeting and I can figure it out, settle it, and go back to my desk and get back on Facebook. I mean, this is, hopefully that's not the case. I'm embellishing that a bit. But this is, this is, this is what can happen to a lot of us in our work. We can see this situation and then we see another one. It's like, even as a pastor, I see this situation, oh, I've seen this one coming. Yeah, I've been doing this for a while, folks, and, you know, it's easy to think, well, this is just another situation like that one, so, you know, this kind of worked back then, so let's try this again here, and, and it's easy, whatever kind of work you do to begin to slide into just going through the motions. Seems like it could have been easy for Jesus to do this as well. I, I mean... Could have been easy for him, knowing of his particular skill set, to, to simply say, ah, let me just, you know, say a few things here and touch the person here. And, you know, it's, it's how it usually works. It's how it's worked. That's why all these people are following me around everywhere I'm trying to go. And so I'll just do it again and, and just kind of move on. I can get back to my vacation is what I think Jesus might have been thinking. But he doesn't do that in these stories. You notice that? He doesn't just, he's not just satisfied with going through the motions with these folks. He's not satisfied with just mailing it in, saying, just get on with it, and I'll get on with it, and we'll get back to what we were both trying to do. Instead, Jesus enters into these interactions with his whole self. He enters in with, with all that he has to offer. It seems a little bit strange in the first story, Jesus' response, and it is strange to this Woman, I mean, he's finally getting some time off, and, and let's hold on to this because Jesus' ministry was always in this rhythm of, of engagement and rest. Engagement and rest. That was how Jesus lived his ministry, or at least that's how he tried to. He was often getting interrupted when he tried to rest, as maybe some of you do as well. But engagement and rest, and he, 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 he gets away from where he had been in an argument with the Pharisees and religious leaders just previously in the previous verses, he gets away and he goes to a Gentile region. He goes to Tyre, uh, an area, a region that was filled with Gentile people, non-Jewish people. And, and what we know, though, is that Jesus wasn't going there, at least from the context. We know that Jesus wasn't going to the Gentile region on a, on a mission trip. 
We would, you know, at first it's like he's going to Tyre, and you just, if you don't read the next line, you're like, oh, Jesus, he's such a missionary. He's headed out to reach out to the Gentiles. He just made this great speech to the Jewish leaders about how it's not outward ritual that's important. It's what's in the heart. And now Jesus is going to put it into action. He's going to go out to the Gentile region. He's going to really demonstrate what, this, what he just taught about in, in life. But then you read the next line, and it says he went to a house to escape the crowds. And it's like, oh, that's kind of weird. Actually, he's not on a mission trip. He's trying to get some time off. But before he can put his legs up and grab an iced tea and start to kind of, you know, relax a little bit, a woman comes barreling into the house, falling at his feet, begging him to heal her daughter who has been possessed by an evil spirit. Um, interesting circumstance. This woman is a, is a Gentile. This woman is a Gentile woman. This woman is a Gentile woman with a demon-possessed child. And in that day, that was three strikes. That was three strikes against her. And especially in her coming into the presence of a, of a Jewish man, especially a Jewish religious teaching man, this would have meant you're out. Three strikes and you're out. But instead, Jesus begins to engage her in conversation. Now, his conversation sounds really harsh, right? His first, his first response, um, crazy, insensitive, out of line, chauvinistic, racist perhaps even, some have said about Jesus' line to her. He appears, if I can translate into some vernacular of our day, to tell her to get lost. I don't have time for you. I've got other things I need to be attending to. You need to leave because my job, my mission is to minister to the the Jewish people, the, the children at the table. And if the Gentiles, the dogs underneath the table, want to receive some of this good news, then you're going to have to wait for another day and another prophet. That's what it sounds like Jesus is saying to her. Let's be honest. That's what Jesus is saying to her. (laughs) You're waiting for me to tell you that he's saying something else. Well, I might give you some suggestions, but this is what he's saying to her. And this is what we have. This is what the scriptures tell us. And it leaves us uh, a little bit reaching, a little bit confused perhaps. Some suggest, I've read the commentaries, some suggest that, that what, we do, what, we, what we have here is we have caught Jesus in his very human self. Fully man, fully human, fully God. But at this moment, we've caught him in scripture. Mark, the gospel writer, has caught him in his fully human self. He is worn out from doing ministry, and uh, just feels himself incapable of offering another ounce of compassion in this this circumstance. Others have suggested that, that really Jesus, in his fully God and fully human self, had had reached sort of the limit of his self-awareness at this point, that he truly did understand himself as as coming, not just primarily, but 
solely for a ministry to the people, the, Jew, the Jewish people, his own people. And that, that he was not just harsh, he was focused. He was ultra-focused on the mission that he understood at the time for the Father to have given him. And he wasn't going to let anything get in its way. Others, I kind of like this one as well. I mean, these are all just kind of things, ways that we can try to understand this. But some suggest that Jesus is actually being ironic. That he's speaking as the Jewish people of his day might have expected him to speak. And in so doing, was exposing the bigotry and the callousness of such a position. We don't know. Maybe you know. If you know, you can tell everybody after the service, all right? Um, and feel free to do so. But unfortunately, we don't fully know. This is an incident. This is an instance in Scripture where we need more information. We just we need like another. We need we need Mark to give just another parentheses, like he did last week. Remember when he gave like the whole paragraph of parentheses explaining the the, the ritual of, of hand washing. We need Mark another parentheses that we wish he would have given us to explain what exactly Jesus is doing with this interaction. But what we know for sure is that through this interaction, we know this through this interaction, this woman and just. Just hold on to this. That, this. that somehow in the interaction that Jesus had with this woman, she was prompted to respond in faith. She was prompted to, to say to Jesus, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but Lord, even the dogs eat the scraps crumbs that fall from the table. As if to say, Jesus, maybe or maybe not am I worthy, but I know that you are able, and I know that the resources of heaven are at your disposal, and I'm desperate here. Some suggest that Jesus is like teasing her, that like this, there's this banter going on. I don't think Jesus teases people who are desperate. I, I Threw that one out. This lady's desperate, and she's, and she's responding in faith, saying, Jesus, it may not be appropriate. I understand your priority. Whatever it is that you're trying to say to me, it may not be appropriate for me to even be here, but I am desperate, and I'm calling out to you in faith, believing that somehow, some way, you might respond and save my daughter. Jesus looks at her and says, good answer. Listen to the tone. I, I wasn't there. I didn't hear him, but I'm, I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't say, oh, good answer. Good answer. Go on home. No, I think Jesus looked at her and he said, that's a better answer than I, I even had in mind. What a great answer. And Jesus, in this personal, intimate Willingness to engage with this woman on her very unique and specific circumstance. Here's her saying this and says, that's so right. 
you're so right. And maybe even in that moment, I don't know what's going on in Jesus' mind, maybe even in that moment he senses his own mission and his own awareness of his mission expanding in his own head and in his own heart. Maybe the Father is revealing to him, and even in these moments, about what it is and how it is that Jesus will be moving in, in days to come. Good answer. Go on home. Your daughter's well. Second story, Jesus again finds himself in Gentile territory. Again, maybe he had hoped to sort of slide into Gentile territory on the radar. His vacation up in Tyre didn't work out, so here in the 10 cities, it's kind of like the five cities. You know, he's going to the 10 cities to get away, get a little, little R&R, hoping to slide in under the radar. But before he's able to find a quiet place, the crowds find him. And this time the crowds, notice the scene, the crowds bring this man to him, deaf and unable to speak. And they're begging Jesus. I'm not sure why they were so interested in this man, why the crowds were so intrigued. Maybe, maybe he was a very important person to him. Maybe it was someone who had just been in this, likely been in this situation since birth, um, unable to speak, unable to hear. And they bring him to Jesus, begging, you hear the words, begging Jesus to, heal, to touch the man and to heal the man. Touch him and heal him. I love it because... You know, again, Jesus, he could have been like, all right, well, I'm here. The crowds are here. Let's give them what they asked for. But you notice what he did? Grabs the man's hand, and he says, let's go over here. And he walks him away from the crowds. And in this case, sort of leaves the crowd behind and takes the man over to a very private and personal place place where they could not only kind of interact in this exchange of miraculous goods, <laughs> but that they could enter into personal relationship. See, I think that personal relationship is what Jesus always, always longs for. He's not interested in just healing folks for the sake of healing folks, for the sake of rising his popularity. It was already high enough, but he was interested always. And by the way, he remains interested in personal relationship. And even the crowd who had begged Jesus to touch the man <laughs> could not have imagined what perhaps they saw from a distance. Jesus didn't just lay his hands on the man. He stuck his fingers in his ears. I mean, let's get the picture. It's, it's crazy. He didn't just kind of put his hand over his mouth and sort of make this nice, gentle motion. He, forgive me, spits on his fingers and basically says, stick your tongue out and say ah to the man. Can't speak, but stick it out. And he touches his tongue with his fingers that had been spat. You remember when your mom used to like make you stick your tongue out and she'd put her finger up and touch your tongue and then rub it on your face? Your moms didn't do that? I don't know what's worse, having your mom make you stick your tongue out or just she stick her tongue out and then rub that on your... Either one's bad. 
Jesus, on the fingers, on the tongue, personal, intimate, knowing that this man who had likely been in this condition since he was born needed someone in front of him who was going to do something dramatic, perhaps, needed someone in front of him who was going to look him in the eyes and stick his fingers in his ears and spit on his fingers and touch his tongue and elicit in this man some sense of some sense of hope that something could happen, that something is going on here beyond what has ever gone on before, and that I don't know what this guy's doing, but he's doing something, and to rise up in him some sense of anticipation that change could take place. And I, I just, I love the scene with spat upon fingers on tongue, Jesus leaning back, sighing and looking to heaven and just saying, be open. Be loosed, be set free. And the man begins to speak. And you know what he does? He joins the chorus of the crowd exclaiming the praises of God. Amazing. It's amazing, they all say, what this man has done. Two miracles of healing both among Gentiles, both with unusual and unexpected features, both demonstrating that Jesus is not only the Lord, but he is the Lord who is creative. Jesus is the Lord who is interested. Jesus is the Lord who is sensitive. He is the Lord who is responsive to the unique details of every human situation. And he works in ways, catch this, he works in ways that are known ultimately only to him to bring about healing and hope for those who are desperately in need. That's what the story tells us. It's personal for Jesus. It's personal. Maybe you're desperate and in need this morning. Maybe you feel like I was describing to the kids. Maybe you feel like that person who's on the outside looking in. Maybe you feel like that desperate mother who came falling at the feet of Jesus for one of your own children, perhaps, who is is sick or who is in great spiritual need today. Maybe you feel a list like the woman of barrier after barrier that should keep you from Jesus. Maybe it's the color of your skin. Maybe it's your checkered past. Maybe it's a hurt that is so deep within you that it's invisible to others. Maybe it's the fact that no, there's sin in your life that plagues you that nobody else knows about. Maybe there's guilt or shame or fear that is in your life even now that keeps you from knowing and moving towards Jesus. The story invites you to keep coming. Just like the woman, to keep falling on your knees, not ever knowing or comprehending how it is that Jesus might work. Because the reality of the story is that whatever barrier you might feel stands in between you and God, Jesus stands at the ready to cross it today. Jesus stands at the ready to move toward us with his creative and healing touch, and though a crumb 
would be enough for us. The cross tells us what Jesus did on the cross tells us that now it's not just the crumbs that are available, available but all the resources of heaven to your particular need. All of God's grace, all of God's forgiveness, all of God's strength, it's all there for those who will believe. Some of us, like the man with the speech impediment, are wrapped up. We're in a sort of bondage this morning. Let's just be honest about it for a moment. Maybe some of us are in a bondage of bitterness or resentment. That just got you gripped. Maybe some of us are ensnared by an addiction or by just a relentless self-centeredness. Maybe this morning some of us just feel confined by our anxieties and our self-doubt. We're in bondage. But like the man... (laughs) With the stopped up ears and the tied up tongue. If that's you at all today, the story invites you to see Jesus grabbing your hand and pulling you away from the crowd and acting in ways that would awaken you to the reality and speaking to you in ways that could awaken you to the reality that you could actually be set free. I think some of us have slipped into our bondage and our uh, snares and, and our traps. And we've, we've, we're like the frog in the kettle. We've just kind of gone in there and the heat's got turned. We don't even know what's happening around us. And it's just destroying our lives. I think Jesus wants to grab us by the hand, pull us apart, and begin to speak to us in ways that, that say, Wake up. You are, you are deeper in this than you maybe understood yourself to be. And you don't have to live this way. This doesn't have to be your destiny. This doesn't have to be your reality. There are other options. In fact, we need to hear Jesus looking at us, holding our hand, reaching to us in ways that only he can, touching us at the very depth of our soul, looking to the heavens and with a sigh simply saying, be opened. Let this woman be loosed. Let this man be set free. Let liberty come to this captive. And that's Jesus' prayer, and that's what, Jesus is, that's what Jesus can do for each of us, wherever we may find ourselves this morning. I believe that the healing power of your life, uh, of, of God, can be a reality in your life today. We sing that song from time to time. He knows my name. Just He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls and hears me when I call. He truly does, friends. And he stands ready to receive you and respond to you today. Just 
Just briefly, I want to also say, though, that I'm hopeful that this story would speak to us in an additional way as a community of faith this morning. And you heard me already kind of give this challenge to the kids, but I want to give it to the teens and to the adults as well this morning. Along with our own needs, I'm praying that we would hear this story as an invitation from Jesus to join with him in this kind of of others-centered, aware of the unique needs, sensitive to the specifics of life kind of mission. Oh, spiritual nourishment for one another and those already walking with Jesus is essential, but our mission cannot end there. I like this quote. Do you have that, Darren? One author that I read this week, she said it like this. Like Jesus himself, his disciples are continually, and that's us, his disciples are continually called to a larger vision of mission. One that aims to embrace the outsider, the stranger, even the enemy. Just leave that up there, will you? Continually called to a larger vision of ministry. Kevin Manoia is a, is a chaplain down at Azusa Pacific University. Um, he used to be a bishop in the Free Methodist Church and uh, is just, he's quite a guy. I mean, he's a chaplain at APU, but that, I think that sort of just gives him a salary and he goes out and does just all sorts of amazing things all over the world, really. Um, he's become a friend of mine. I'd like to say a good friend, but I'll just stop at friend. Um, but just, just through some various interactions and meetings that we've been in together, I've gotten to know Kevin. Um, but I read and, and got familiar with something just yesterday that put him into uh, sort of hero status for me. And I think it has a lot to do with the text that we read today. I want to tell you about Kevin for a minute. He was in the news because of the role that he has played in the journey of California Assembly Bill 2943. That means a lot to you, I'm sure. Most of you have been studying the California Assembly Bills that are coming, uh, you know, they're coming up to be voted upon this fall. No, me neither. I, I just, AB 2943. But this has been a very important bill, actually, in California in this last six months or so. And if you're new here, I talk about politics like this is probably the first time ever. <laughs> but maybe the first time in at least a few years. But this story, I just want you to know right from the start, if you're nervous because I'm talking about politics, this story isn't about politics. Okay? The story is not about politics, ultimately. But AB 2943, if you're not familiar with it, it was a bill that was introduced last spring by Assemblyman Evan Lowe. And Assemblyman Lowe introduced this bill as one that would have designated what were 
what are known as conversion therapy services. These are things that, that, that people go, that, that psychologists, psychiatrists advertise that you can come and you can pay a fee and you will receive certain amount and style of counseling that will convert you from homosexuality to heterosexuality. And Evan Lowe, who is homosexual and is the, the leader of the LGBTQ caucus in the assembly, introduced this bill to say this is fraudulent. This, this science isn't good. It's been, it's been reputed by most psychological associations. They don't look at conversion or reparation therapy as good psychological science. And so it, it should not be advertised. It should not be made available uh, to, to people in our state. And it wouldn't surprise you to hear that the bill had easily cleared all the legislative hurdles that it had come up against in the different houses, uh, in, in the chambers of the California uh, government, um, all the Democrats and a bunch of Republicans as well had said this just isn't, isn't good. And, and so this bill was on the fast track to being passed. It had the backing of Governor Brown, easily would have become law. But follow the story. Church leaders across the state, like people like me, I guess, I wasn't a part of these conversations, but many pastors and church leaders had expressed a lot of concern about this bill. Um, not necessarily because of the, what it was actually saying, but because it was too broad and that it could be potentially used to to, to say some other things down the line as well, that it could be used not only to stop conversion therapy, but it could be used to stop pastors from counseling people, even within their congregations, about their sexuality. And so pastors rose up and said, hey, uh, this is not a good bill. And it, it, it has ramifications that go way beyond what you intend it to be. And so we got we to gotta fight against it. And so there began to be this, this battle, this culture war. And you may have been aware of it, or you probably weren't. But this culture war between the church and the gay LGBTQ community, essentially, we're right, you're wrong, we're right, you're wrong, just let's battle it out. Let's line up our votes and see who wins. But in the, in, in the face of this opposition, Evan Lowe, the assemblyman, actually softened his stance a little bit and decided this summer to go on what he called a listening tour in which he was going to walk around, drive around, fly around California and meet with various pastors and religious leaders and just try to hear from them about their concerns. And one of those pastors was Kevin Manoia. And the article I wrote or I read spoke to the reality that instead of attacking each other all summer long, Kevin and Evan built a friendship. <laughs> that they began to see each other as human people. And they began to think together about ways forward that wouldn't be hurtful to either community. They began to 
work to really hear one another amidst all the debate and the politics. And it was a relationship that culminated in an editorial piece that Kevin wrote in the Orange County Register this last week. And if you want to Google that later, Kevin Manoia, OC Register. And he wrote this, this editorial there in the, the paper in which he expressed in ways that Kevin is uniquely gifted to do. He expressed his great opposition to the bill and his opposition to conversion therapy and his invitation and his hope that the LGBTQ caucus would be open to working with churches to come to a better solution before this went into law. And you're never going to guess it. But the very next day, after Kevin's piece was published, Evan pulled his bill. A sure-fire victory for the LGBTQ community. Shelved it. Set aside. And low acknowledged in the paper, his decision was unconventional. He said, some would say, this is crazy. Why would you pause when you don't need to, when you're in the driver's seat? But then he said, maybe there's something here. Could this be an opportunity for transformational change in which you can get outside of the typical culture wars and come together and work with them to craft language that they might be able to support? I wish I would have said that. <laughs> For his part, the article went on to say that Kevin Manoia said the bill's setback left him both pleased and burdened. Hear, hear Kevin's heart. That's what he said. He's burdened because he knows the heat that Lowe may face from his allies. But he said he felt confident faith that faith leaders and LGBTQ rights advocates could thread the needle on this issue in future legislative attempts. I, I texted Kevin yesterday because we're friends and just said, hey, man, I just, I'm just proud to know you. That's the projection of our faith that I want to be about, one that's about relationship, one that's about not just the end goal, but the means by which we get there. One that's about listening, one that's about sharing, one that's about firm conviction, but, but an openness to conversation and care and compassion. And it took a little while, but he wrote back and he just said, collaborative conversation is just beginning. Keep us in your prayers. Do you hear what's happening there? It isn't just about the bill getting shelved. That's not where the victory lies, I don't think. Some, some Christians today are like, yes, we got the bill shelved. Yes, the LGBTQ community will not press on with its agenda. Yes, we won. That's not the victory. I don't believe that's the victory in this story by any means. The victory lies in a Christian person entering into relationship 
with someone that they disagree with, with respect and with kindness, committing to them as a person and to what they feel to be appropriate and reflective of Jesus. That's victory in Jesus. Not driven by political agenda, but driven by what the right thing is to do that brings glory to God. It wasn't the debate in the assembly. Do you get it? It wasn't the accusations from ultra-conservative Christians that got us to this point. It was compassion. It was an ability to see the image of God in the other. It was conversation. It was one-on-one. It was trust. It sounds a lot like Jesus in our passage to me. And my prayer is that this would look a lot more like us in days to come. So where are the people that are different from us? What are their needs? How can we move toward them in healing and restorative ways? Maybe you have an adult child who has walked away from faith. I saw this great book title the other day about doing life with your adult children. It's called Keep Your Mouth Shut and the Welcome Mat Out. I love that. Maybe it's a neighbor who speaks a different language or is a different color. Maybe it's a coworker with a different sexual orientation. Maybe it's a family member who has a drug problem or a drinking problem. Maybe it's a classmate with special needs. And maybe, like it appears from Jesus at the beginning of this passage, you may feel like you don't have time right now. Maybe you feel like you just need a break. Maybe you think that that's going to take too much work. Maybe to actually to, to, to stop and enter into a relationship with a person just seems like a little bit more than you have to give at this moment. Maybe you feel like Jesus seemed to be a little worn down. But maybe, just maybe, Maybe you don't have all the resources of heaven. <laughs> At least you don't feel that way. But maybe you have a scrap. Maybe you have a crumb. And that may be all that that person might need right now. I'm going to have our worship team come up if you can. Let's pray together. God, thanks uh, for the way that you know us and engage with us. You created us the way we are. We, we've really got you to hold responsible for that. <laughs> you, you made us unique individuals. And, and you want nothing more, and the story bears it out. These stories bear it out through the life of Jesus, that you want nothing more than to engage with us in ways that will help us to become all that you've called us to be. Not some puppet, not some one with a thumb on our backs, just, just fitting a certain mold, but becoming all that you made us to be. And Jesus, at the same time, you're inviting us to join with you in, in increasing our observational skills and beginning to become so much more aware of the people around us at work, in our neighborhoods, and in our own families, and in our schools. I may need someone simply to look them in the eye and say, good answer. Or someone who may need them just to say, why don't you and I talk about this? And to begin to act in ways, maybe even dramatic ways, that could give that person some sense of hope that, that, that life really could change. 
there is a different possibility before them. Someone who's desperate and looking for some crumbs. God, would you remind us of your grace today? Would you fill us with your grace? Would you empower us in such a way to know your grace that we might become conduits of your grace to the world around us? We love you and we worship you now.